Welcome to the Lonely Pastors Podcast with Brother Michael Battenfield and Brother Derek Bremer. Just two small church pastors seeking to glorify God, to grow in grace, and to flesh out doctrine, theology, and issues facing the church today. Thank you for tuning in. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Lonely Casters Podcast. This is Michael Battenfield. And this is Brother Derek Bremer. And we're just two uh, small church pastors seeking to glorify God through the work of uh, the local church and through this podcast. We're going to go ahead and jump right on in. We've noticed that we've run kind of long on previous episodes. And so we're just going to go ahead and jump in uh, to one of the main purposes of this podcast, and that is theology, Uh, and particularly the state of theology, both inside and outside the church. You know, we need to start off, as we've done in the past, with some definitions. Theology, and the primary part of the word theology comes from the Greek what? Theos. Which means? God. God. So theology is the word or logic of God himself. Theology is a very broad term that refers not only to God in general, but to all that God has revealed to us in his word. Uh, This would include the study of Christ or Christology, the study of the Holy Spirit, or pneumatology, then the study of sin, which is called hermetology, Uh, the study of future or final things, which we call eschatology. Notice the consistency, though, that ology at the end. It's the same terminology we use in the sciences, right? Right, so it comes from the word logos, or the Greek word literally for word or for logic. And so it's saying a word about something. So biology would be a word about biology. Or life. So what we really think about here is that theology simply speaks of theology proper or uh, that which has specific reference to the study of God and how that ought to impact, ought to direct our beliefs, our practices, and even goes to the foundation of our faith. R.C. Sproul authored a book published in 2014 uh, titled Everyone is a Theologian. I remember when that book came out, it got a lot of people scratching their heads because they were like, well, no, I'm not. In fact, anybody that's been in church work knows there's plenty of folks that sit in pews every Sunday that could care less. You you start talking about the word theology and their eyes gloss over and they just kind of start rolling their eyes. Uh, That controversy, though, is only because it's true. Everybody really is a theologian. 100% of humanity are theologians. Even if they put zero effort into studying about God, just as the term atheist is a fraudulent word, everyone has a God. They may not believe in the God of the Bible, the God that I worship, the God that I serve, but they have a God. It may be themselves. Their theology is themselves. Um, but that's the, that's the point. Someone can say they don't believe in God, but that doesn't take away the reality of God from our perspective. It just means that they're worshiping a different God. Uh, so, you know, whatever they practice, whatever they do, is really a product of their theology. In fact, if they honestly believe there is no God, that is still going to impact their, quote, religion of self. Yeah, so what makes what makes Sproul's book title so controversial whenever he says everyone is a theologian? I can see it from two hands. One, you have the church member that says, I'm not a theologian, I don't think about these things. Or worse yet, as you've pointed out, you have the atheist that says, well, I may be a theologian, but 
don't call me that because I'm not a religious nut like you. I don't want to be associated with the word. Don't even associate me with anything that represents God, right? But I think more concerning is the true, genuine theologian, whether that means, you know, in the sense that a pastor should be a theologian, or an academic whose job truly is theology, and this is where they spend their time focusing on these things. To say that everyone's a theologian would be like telling a carpenter, everyone's a carpenter. Anyone can put some nails in a piece of wood. Well, if you've seen a true carpenter work, that's quite offensive. Yeah. If you've seen any tradesman do their job, it's offensive to even entertain the idea that a layperson could do what they're doing. When we say that everyone's a theologian, what can be controversial about that is what we're talking about is serious business. Right. In fact, I look at the warning in Hebrews chapter 6 where the author of Hebrews says that it is for your peril if you hear these things and turn away that repentance will no longer be available to you. That's a scary warning coming straight out of the Bible. When we talk about theology, it is serious business, and that is why it's important, I would say, that everyone recognize that everyone's a theologian. Because if we're all doing it, whether we're aware of it or not aware of it, then it's important that we're paying attention to what we are doing. That we not do it mindlessly, that we not do it trivially, but rather that we would pursue doing theology either in a good way or in a bad way. And without pursuing good theology, that is, pursuing the right sources for theology, we're going to lead ourselves astray. And we're going to have a theology not shaped by God, but rather by us. This is ultimately, I think, the fear of atheism. Rather than worshiping a God who reveals himself to you, atheists choose to worship themselves because there is no fiat that created them. And in so doing, what they do is ultimately create a God of themselves. And we run into the problem that has faced man since the very beginning that we seek to, and as cliche as it sounds, create God in our image rather than recognizing that we are created in God's image. We bring this all up to set the stage for today's discussion of theology, especially within self-identified Christianity. We have zero influence or control over those who are outside of that umbrella. Sometimes we might wonder if we have any influence on those inside the umbrella. Uh, But one thing that was startling, in fact, one of the uh, real inspirations for doing this podcast way back when we first started talking about it was when Ligonier uh, released their 2022 report and they do these every so often on the state of theology and there was so much in it that I would call a train wreck. It's not surprising when you see the results because they compare the general population with those who identify as Christian slash evangelical And the world's perspective on these areas of theology are absolutely unsurprising. What's disappointing is when those that are supposedly within the church come so close to matching that outside the church on several things. And while we're not here to discuss that report per se, there was one aspect of it that really stuck out to me in relation to what we're dealing with today. And I think we know some of the answers behind them. Uh, And that is that evangelical Christians, a significant portion, like 53%, believe that God changes. 
And I, when I read that, I remember seeing that going, what Bible are they reading? Because even the most adulterated version of Scripture I've ever seen still says God doesn't change. Malachi 3 and 6, God explicitly stated, For I, Yahweh, do not change. James 1 and 17, uh, in that we can read, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Not even His shadow changes. And we could continue on with, with many texts throughout Scripture that address God's immutability. But what it comes down to, bad theology. But where does it come from? It, it does not... It, people say, well, I got it out of the Bible. The two verses I just read. How do you argue with the black and white text of it? You, th- there is no argument. So where did they get it? They heard it somewhere. It might have been from an errant preacher. Lord knows I've heard some stuff before coming from pulpits that made me want to get up and yank the man out of the pulpit. Not my job to do in most cases. But I've heard some really awful things come from pulpits before, and people sometimes latch onto those things. But I fear that a great deal of it now comes from the culture itself. Whether it be our entertainment, whether it be the music we listen to, or the the sources. Hey, I remember several years ago I got myself into some trouble when I called out a particular publisher's VBS material for teaching flat-out, unadulterated modalism. And I got some guys upset with me because I'd put it out on social media and their church was doing that particular material and they asked me to back off of it. And I'm like, but what am I backing off of? This is textbook modalism. That's a heresy. And so, you know, you get into these things and it's like, if you teach that in the context of church as supposedly good theology then how much worse is it when people go to sources that don't even claim to be good theology? Uh, And so the answer to it would be we as Baptists who lay claim, and that makes me cringe just a little bit. Know what I mean? Do we not? I mean, our statements of faith say it. We claim, even if we're not always consistent about it, that we get our practice and our beliefs from Scripture alone. The Bible being the only totally reliable, inerrant source of both our beliefs and our practice. Yet the truth is, people get their theology from many sources that may or may not even have a biblical starting point. And we spent much of our uh, the time in our very first episode that we recorded, Prolegomena, discussing those different sources of theology. I think what's important to recognize is when we say Scripture alone, we are not saying that Scripture is the only source of theology. We're saying that it is the only authoritative source of theology. But we have to recognize that our concept about who God is is shaped by so very much more in our lives. It's shaped by who we are, where we've been raised, who our parents were, what the world around us is currently tied up in a knot over. Our politics, culture, tradition, and even our pride can cause us to read the Bible differently. Take, for example, um, the different differences of opinion in interpreting Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem context, and how that's understood by a Presbyterian, and how that's understood by a Baptist. And don't even throw a Catholic in the mix. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. But, so, 
here we have differences of understanding that are ultimately influenced by our background. The truth is, when I read a ba- when I read a Presbyterian talking about Acts chapter fifteen, in my head I'm constantly going, "When are you going to talk about what the Bible actually says?" Your presuppositions are way off base. You're reading into the text. But if I'm honest with myself, and this is hard to do, <laughs> I also believe that a Presbyterian reading what I would write about Acts chapter 15, they would say your presuppositions wrong. That's right. They would say you're reading into the text. You're making light of this point to support your claim. And so many other different things because as try as we might, we bring ourselves into the text. That's why part of the hermeneutic process or the way that we're supposed to come and know the Bible, part of it is, in some of the sense, purging ourselves of these different opinions in such a way that we recognize that they're there so that we can deal with the Bible as honestly as possible. That's one of the things I talk about frequently in our settings, especially on Sunday nights here at first, um, is that we need to be teachable. And being teachable sometimes means you have to disconnect your presuppositions. You have to disconnect what you've always believed for the time being so that you can actually allow the Word of God to speak what it speaks and then use that as your starting point to then regroup around what the Word of God says. When it, when it reinforces what you've always believed after you've honestly separated yourself from it, doesn't that build your faith up much stronger? It's encouraging to find that, you know what, I was right. At the same time, we must be willing to stick with what Scripture says versus what we've always heard. I recently did a, uh, a evening me- uh, lesson on, uh, what is it, error, um, tradition, and heresy, and kind of... The comparison, it went almost two hours. We won't talk about that. Um, my folks were really nice about it, but I was wondering why they were getting squirmy in the pants. But that being said, that's one of the things we dealt with was this reality that we must focus on where it's coming from. Our source is hugely important, but we also have to be willing to take an objective look at something that, hey, faith is personal. It's hard to be totally objective about it, but that's what we have to do. When the Scriptures say, come let us reason together, that means come let us come to a meeting of the minds around what God has revealed, not what we bring to the table. And that's a hard thing to do. It's imperative that we do. And the thing that I think we miss, I'm not trying to speak in circles, but when we say that you have to empty your mind to come to the text... I don't know about you, but I actually, I don't find it to be possible within myself to empty my mind. I can say, all right, I'm going into this with an open mind, but I still think I'm right. What I have to do is I have to acknowledge what my presuppositions are. Right. Being honest, that's the big thing. I think a lot of people's wrestle with this is they think you've got to separate or, or, or open your mind means you've got to turn your brain off. That's not it at all. That's quite contrary to it. It's hard to reason with your brain off. Charles Spurgeon was introducing a difficult passage of Scripture that he was preparing to preach on. Spurgeon said, We come to this passage ourselves with the intention to read it with the simplicity of a child, and whether we find therein to state it, and if it may not seem to agree with something we have hitherto held, 
we are prepared to cast away every doctrine of our own rather than one passage of Scripture. That has to be our attitude. Yeah. Well, and we know the danger of plucking a single passage of Scripture and establishing an entire doctrine or theology on it. You've got to be consistent throughout Scripture. Uh, And so that brings us back around. You know, as we're trying to work our way towards the main concept here, where we're getting our theology from, what is a favorite tool for teaching children and we do this in secular schools especially youngsters how did how did how did you learn the abcs honestly how did you learn the abcs a b c d that's how i learned them um guess what i even did something as silly as that when i learned how to read music for the lines and spaces. And and you, you use these things, and not just mnemonics, but you set it to music. Well, guess what? That's an extraordinarily biblical way of teaching doctrine and theology. The entire book of Psalms and all, most of the poetic books of, of the Hebrew texts are set up that way so that they work in the same way as those songs that we use to teach children. They, by repetition, it helps to set it in your mind, to make it part of who you are. Uh, And that's the entire thing because music itself is a powerful tool. So, again, in church, when we bring kids up, how many of us learned a lot of the early Bible realities through these children's songs? How did we learn that Jesus loves me? Well, most of us learned it not because a preacher told us, well, Jesus loves you, straighten up. But instead, we learned it, Jesus loves me, this I know. We learned it that way. And, you know, and, and you know I, you're I, familiar with the Carl Barth uh, illustration. Carl Barth, for those of you that don't know, the wordiest wordsmith you've ever met. And if you ever have to read Barth, just buckle in and enjoy it for the best that you can. But he <laughs> Enjoy it. Oh, my goodness. If you like torture. <laughs> he writes in such a complicated way. And he should, right? Theology is serious business. We should, be, salad, but... <laughs> we should be precise in our language, as precise as we possibly can be. Someone asked Barth one time uh, at a lecture that he was giving, what's the greatest truth that you found, Dr. Barth, in all of the Bible? And he quoted, Jesus loves me, thus I know, for the Bible tells me so. That brings back to mind, though, the value of using those kinds of things, these tools. Uh, In fact, I asked in that teaching session uh, just a couple of weeks ago at church, and at least half of those people acknowledged that that's how they learned the books of the Bible was through that song that teaches the books all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Um, you know, I I had to learn it before I knew that song. And so when I first heard the song, it confused my brain because I was trying to just recite them. Uh, you know, seminary wrote memorization versus the song. I wish I'd known the song long before. It made it a whole lot easier learning it in seminary. Uh, but how many people learn the Bible, Bible stories through song? Through slightly less com- though slightly less common, it still registers with several people today. I know people that still go back to those lessons they learned via songs. How about Father Abraham? Yeah, I heard he. Had I had it all songs. wrong. I had it all wrong. For I, I heard that a million times growing up, and I always thought it said seven sons. And so for years, I thought Abraham had seven sons, and I was like, "Wait a minute, that's not right." But again, I learned it wrong. But it was the music's fault, right? <laughs> 
But music, I believe, is a gift from God. I believe that was one of the main reasons God gave us it, besides the fact that it is aesthetically pleasing, is that it is such a wonderful teaching tool. It Music has a power to implant things where just simply reading and reciting and repeating and reciting never will get it ingrained. One could, like I said, learn a lot of great theology if they would just learn to sing the Psalms, for example. It would be a wonderful thing. There are songs that teach catechisms. It's a wonderful tool. Many folks also, along that line, cling to old hymns. I've seen recently a reemergence of a whole lot of this whole musical style debate again. The church is missing out on a great deal of rich theology and rich doctrine by not singing the old hymns and going to these new. Well, okay, I'll go with that. There's a one of my favorite old hymns is in the Heavenly Highway hymn, and it goes something like this. This is actually the last verse, but they're all just they're all basically the same thing. It says, "Ain't it a shame to lie on Sunday? Ain't it a shame, a lying shame? Ain't it a shame to lie on Sunday? Ain't it a shame, a lying shame? Ain't it a shame to lie on Sunday when you got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you got Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Ain't it a shame?" That's actually in a hymn book, and from what I've heard. There were churches that used to sing that regularly. And all the other verses deal with working on Sunday, joyriding on Sunday, gossiping on Sunday. There's even some other variables that have been done by some country artists before that include even other stuff. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Let's see, what's that teaching that on Sundays you're not supposed to sin, but on Monday through Saturday, sin is just perfectly fine because it's not ch- it's not church day, right? But, hey... Here's you an idea. How many church people live that way? Now, I'm not going to blame this song because a lot of them didn't even know this song existed. But the reality is, this has been something that has been ingrained from one side or another to have this cultural Christianity where one day a week or part of one day a week, you sort of kind of act like a, quote, Christian, and the rest of the Where does that come from? So what theological doctrinal perspective might one have programmed into their heart singing a song of this caliber, this wonderful, creative, uh, theologically rich writing style? There's the other side, too. A song like Ain't It the Shame, you know, if people aren't living their life that way, or even if people are, it can cause them to think, how ridiculous is that? I almost want to just venture out to say, how did a song like Ain't It a Shame find its way on the pages of a hymnal that is kept in the racks of a church that belongs to Christ? (laughs) There's nothing about how this glorifies God. There's nothing about the connection between righteousness and faith. How'd that song wind up there? Uh, Is it a problem that it wound up there? I'm reminded of another more contemporary song that I don't think anyone has sung in church, but it's called um, Pray For You by Jaron and the Long Road to Love. Have you heard the song? I don't know, unless it's also been recorded by somebody else. I'm not sure. The song is a joke. It begins, Haven't been to church since I don't remember when Things were going good until they fell apart again So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do said, you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes you get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do His job, and you just pray for them. And here's the kicker. 
I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. Oh! I pray a flower pot falls from the windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. My point in bringing this song up is... But isn't that just an imprecatory song? Well, yeah, <laughs> certainly it could be. Actually, I put not that... Not much righteousness to this one, but... <laughs> I, I did put some notes in there about it kind of resembling an imprecatory prayer. But here's the real issue behind it. The song is a joke, and what makes it funny, I hate to be the guy that dissects the humor, but what makes it funny is it disjoints our expectations. When I hear Pray For You, I think, okay, that means love your enemies, alright. Well, the song flips that on the head, and it reveals some cognitive disassociation (laughs) that makes me laugh at it. It's funny and it's humorous. I put it in the same category as the Babylon Bee or any... That's exactly what just came to my mind. The Onion. It's satire. I think Ain't It a Shame is down that same road. But you've even got songs that are just intended to be funny, like Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer, whatever it is. The question is, should the song be sung in church? Should the song be used for a source of theology? Even, hey, Pray For You is talking about praying for my enemies. How much more biblical can it get? Please put a flower pot upside his head like I want to do. (laughs) That sounds great. I want to be fair to the topic at hand as best as we possibly can. It's not a simple topic. Trying to ascribe a black or white rule system for evaluating the types of media that Christians should consume is just impossible. Even when we're trying to ascribe a rule system to ourselves, it's not black and white. How much more is the case when we're trying to come up with a system for people that we care about or for all Christians? The reality is, within the realm of Christian liberty, media consumption may be different from person to person. Then again, you and I, Michael, have the unique position of serving as elders in Christ's church. We have a responsibility for to be shepherds of God's flock, which means we have to care for them and we have to provide counsel for them and how they can distinguish what they should consume and what they should not consume. That unique responsibility is made difficult by the issue at hand in this conversation. So what do you say? Rather than pulling all this apart, why don't we jump into looking at some of the problems or issues that we should consider when talking about a silly comedy song and other forms of entertainment that we might approach. (laughs) Well, I think there's a lot of parallels in media, music, TV, movies. I've got this these bookshelves behind my desk right here that many of them are theology-related books. Some of them I would be extraordinarily cautious handing to somebody to read unless I knew they were already spiritually mature and had the ability to discern. On the other hand, there's books up there that I wouldn't hesitate to hand to anybody because I believe it's sound as can be. There's not going to be many, if any, bones to have to pick through, and so even a novice Christian could wade through it. I think our entertainment, our music, and all that kind of falls in that same category. There are movies, film, broadcast, music that I don't see as a big danger to someone who is sound of of sound mind, sound uh, doctrinal training and theology, who are mature in their faith, who are Berean in attitude. Man, there's movies out there that I wouldn't recommend to a young believer, period, because there's so many problems in it, but somebody that, that enjoys 
doing what I do sometimes, and that is getting the Bible out and doing comparison and being that Berean, I'd say, here, take a shot at this, and I'm interested to see what all you say. But that's the problem is, like you said, we can't just blanket say, this is bad or this is good, except in some cases, which I hope we will deal with today. But again, where does our theology come from? For a new believer who's the most vulnerable they're going to suck up, if they're really a new believer, they're going to be sucking up every bit of theology and doctrine they can whether they even realize that's what they're doing. They've got a hunger to learn more about God. And so I give them a Bible. The world gives them TV. The world gives them Jesus films. The world gives them commentaries. The world gives them devotional books. Jesus Calling. Here's a great place to start. No, I'm not even going to, don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. But, again... In the realm of music, for example, uh, because of the power of music, I think there's that element of having to be so cautious. Uh, and Christian, Christian music, worship music, contemporary Christian, on our favorite radio channels, I can't hardly listen to K-Love anymore. I can't hardly listen to uh, the the contemporary Christian station on XM Radio anymore. It just it seems like every other song I hear this something just goes, "Dear Lord." What? Who's being worshipped here? What's being worshipped here? What's the message here? And it it's not as far off of that crazy song that you mentioned as we might think. It doesn't ask for a flower pot to smash somebody's head, but it's all, a lot of the abhorrent doctrines and theologies that are floating around in, in quote Christianity today are being pushed in these songs. And again, how do we help people to discern? I think the real issue with music, and it is not the style. I don't, I've heard so there's some rappers out there that have some of the most doctrinally theological sound stuff of any genre ever penned since the Bible. It's unbelievable how sound they are. There are those that write some of the most beautiful, musically speaking, Christian, quote, songs out there that are either so shallow or so upside down that they ought to be banned from a Christian's life. They're, so, they're, they're just so bad. Uh, but what we have to think about, in his book, Doxology and Theology by Matt Boswell, he says this, When the church is gathered together in the name of God, only singing which glorifies Him is appropriate. It's not about us. We don't sing corporately because it was our idea. We sing because it was God's idea for His people. Since it is God who has commanded us to sing, it is God who will determine what kind of songs we sing. We are to sing to Him and for Him. Our songs are not meant to be entertainment or a distraction from God. Now, a caveat to this. I'm not a total prude. (laughs) Believe it or not. I get back to the style is not the problem. And I would like to say that if we could hear the Psalms performed by by young David, I think we would find them aesthetically pleasing. I don't think it would cause us to have crunchy, squeezing the seat and getting nauseous feeling unless it was convicting to us because of the content. I think it would be aesthetically pleasing. I believe God loves beauty. I think God's concept of beauty so outshines ours, but that gets back to we got to quit focusing on so much on style and on the aesthetics so much as the contents what we're dealing with here. Um, an old hymn that we sing often which subtly plants a grain of bad theology, 
He lives. This was one of our deacons at the church where I I served the ministry. Um, This hymn by Alfred Hackley um, was his absolute favorite hymn. And we knew the few times he'd have to step up and lead singing, that was going to be sung. But in that hymn, it, uh, it was written, I believe, with the sincerity of heart. Uh, but he was the, the writer was frustrated by a liberal preacher who was pushing that the resurrection was irrelevant and probably a myth. Well, guess what? That, that would get me riled up too. Don't know I'd go writing a hymn about it, but that would get me riled up. So he wrote a hymn as a rebuttal. Well, we know what happens when we knee-jerk, right? But while this hymn is mostly good... It inserts an element of personal experience as an evidence in the chorus uh, advertising that God talks to him verbally. He talks to me and walks with me along a lot. Now, that being said, I think one could talk, could take that in a lot of different directions, but there are people that believe that, well, if you're not hearing God verbally, then he's not talking to you at all. Now, this isn't a damnable heresy. It's not. But it does plant seeds. Of wondering, well, does God even care? I don't hear his voice. So in the case of this hymn, the author's intention was not malicious, but it ultimately produced something that is strange and kind of introduces just a phrase that, well, is pretty... It could be troubling. It could be problematic. It's Yeah, I think troubling is a good word for it. Here's something that kind of troubles me, Brother Michael. Oftentimes, in the field of polemic discussions, whenever we start analyzing these kinds of songs and maybe what might be wrong with them, is we cause people to choke on the bones. <laughs> we start pulling them apart. I'm good at choking uh, on bones. So. so far to the extent where, if it was me, eight years ago, I'd be afraid to have a conversation about what a song even meant because I'm afraid that I would be railroaded for accidentally (laughs) saying, well, God told me, instead of saying, well, God's leading me in this direction through the study of his word. You know, we can focus on all the different ways that we could say something. Ultimately, the same Holy Spirit that's alive in all believers is this working in the lives of all believers. This is why conversations are important. Because then you can talk through these things. And again, like that, that particular hymn, the terminology is problematic. We can't just walk up to him and say, hey, what did you mean by this? Did you mean God's voice was audibly telling you this, that, and the other? Or is this just kind of that sense of your alone time with God and the Word of God that you had read earlier is come percolating back to, uh, to the front for? I mean, we, could, we can justify this away, and it's perfectly fine. Don't get me wrong. But again... Words do have meaning. It's best to discuss them among with other people, especially more mature people. Uh, you know, if it's just a matter of linguistics, those things are easily corrected. It's when you start grasping onto these concepts that are, well, dogmatically bad, bad theology. Oh well, you really did mean that he's talking to you, whispering in your ear to go do this, that, or the other. And I think that's important for our audience to at least hear that this isn't bone splitting and trying to figure out, hey, how good or how bad or 
how not any of these is a song or a television show or whatever, that's not a reason to disassociate from the conversation. And I actually think yes. that's the error that a lot of people make. Yes. They hear that and they run away from it and they go one extreme or the other. There's nothing wrong with it, and so I'm going to digest whatever this is without a care or concern for discernment in the world. Or, well, they told me it was bad and therefore, you know, it's as evil as Satan personified in front of me standing with a, you know... A, all these sorts of problems. So I think it's important for our audience to hear that, that they should be engaged in these conversations with the people at your church. Yeah, You should be talking about the songs that you sing in your service. It should not just be part of the complacent routine that you go through on Sunday. But I love um, when we have church members throughout the week in the church building. And I'm in my office, and as I frequently do, I'll whistle a song. Mm-hmm. And I'll hear someone in the background start picking up the lyrics, and I went, Oh, that's right. That song was on my heart. Yeah. And we're able to have fellowship over things like that. So with that said, a discerning church should be continually having these conversations. And the question should point towards maybe some of these songs are okay to listen to. But that's all the more reason we should be hesitant to singing them in church. Yep. Yep. Just to keep on moving, another one that gets worn out for me... uh, is the Savior is waiting. I don't know about you, but I've sat in enough church services in my life where this song is sung and sung and sung. What's God waiting for? What's Jesus waiting for? Is God not omniscient and all-knowing? See, here's the other side of it. It's one thing to have these language issues. God speaking to me. Is it audible? Those are Those are little things. But they're, they're right there on the surface, though. This is much deeper. You know, God's character, Jesus Christ as God, He is omniscient and He, always know, he is all-knowing. And he is, impot- uh, 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 is he impotent to save souls? The, is He just simply waiting there? I've, I see this picture of Jesus in there wringing His hands going, Oh, I hope He comes. Oh, I hope He'll, he'll, he'll surrender. I hope He'll come up running up here and, and say yes. That's like a groomsman asking a wife to a woman to marry him, and he's hoping that she'll do it, and he's not sure. That's not the God of the Bible. This reinforces the bad theology and interpretation of that that famous scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That has nothing to do with Jesus saving people. It has to do with the church that has basically bumped him out of the door, and he's saying, "I will come back in and fellowship with you." If you're willing and willing to do that, if you're willing to listen, this has nothing to do at all with being saved. But it's that same thing of we've we've got to do, we've got to do, we've got man-centered theology and man-centered salvation. And that's what that song really is. That one is a true cringer for me. And when was the last time you asked a church member if they've been feeling a little prayer wheel turning? Uh-oh. Oh my gosh. Now, disclaimer. That is one of the most fun books in any hymnal I've ever been involved with, okay? I remember several years ago, I hadn't been in ministry long, and my good friend John Frazier, hopefully you'll hear this and you'll hear his name, he's got an Uncle Larry that I also call Uncle Larry, even though we're not related. Uh, also call him Brother Larry because he was a pastor. And we were talking, and I think John and I had just done it as part of a quartet at church. And Larry said, have you ever listened to that song? Well, yeah. Do you know what a prayer wheel is? And I went, oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Oh, oh. Uh, that ain't Christian at all. 
and yet here we are. Prayer wheel. Now, again, I don't see this as an intentional by a hymn writer, uh, Cleveland Derricks, um, but a prayer wheel is not a biblical thing. It's part of a, a mystic Eastern Asian religions that's used in Buddhism, and it's kind of like the Buddhist version of, of prayer beads or a rosary. It's a way of them recording and, and keeping up with their ritualistic prayers. Um... Yeah, so let's just install one by the altar so folks can come up and pray to Jesus and ring their little prayer wheel and say the mantras. Hello? Now, the problem is, just like I was, even soon after I started the ministry, I didn't even think about it. We just let it roll off our back because it's a fun song. The aesthetics are great. And so we just let it go. And then you stop and you go, wait a minute. Prayer, oh, so we can kind of pause here and already recap two things that stand out to me as the consequences, the problem, or the issue at hand when we talk about getting our theology from these auxiliary sources. The first one is that the entertainment that we consume has the ability to shape our presuppositions of spiritual things. And we see this all over. I think some of the examples we're going to talk about later in this episode are concept of what an angel is. Or what is our depiction of um, God and his attitude towards wanting to save sinners? Uh, Our presuppositions are important because they're impossible to get away from. We have to acknowledge them and let Scripture reshape and remold them. But if we don't, our presuppositions are shaped and that will influence the way that we read and interpret the Bible. The second issue at hand is that it has the potential to influence Christian ethics or behavior. I wonder if the rosary wasn't a product of such prayer wheel. Or how did that influence religious life? We really do then need to dismiss the claim of some that would say, getting theology right in our lives, even our media and entertainment, is an unimportant thing. Hmm. Those Christians, those good and well-intentioned saints who are sitting in the pews of churches and uncomfortable with the preacher telling them how important these things are, you can't run away from it. This is going to impact you and the reason your good shepherd cares that you care is because it affects your life. Doesn't Scripture deal with this idea of watching what you take in? Whether it's the dietary law that that served that purpose of paying attention to it, to the New Testament version of it, with what you're taking in in the culture. Um, where again, that gets back to your source. So I think that that is a kind of a universal idea in Scripture. Yeah, be careful what you take in. But there's also the other side. How did we get so far? Because there's a song on that. Looking out, looking out at the way that the American churches shaped themselves. It seems like the more common consensus would be, why does it matter? <laughs> I, I believe we're in the minority here, which yep. is a scary thing. I think it's based on the trend that we've seen in the American church that is drawn towards an individualized Christianity. Instead of viewing ourselves as a people of God, chosen by God, brought together by God, we see ourselves as a lone pilgrim, 
pursuing Christ, a watered-down version of faith that places experience over community guidance, Mm. which is really troublesome because our faith is fundamentally rooted in the health and success of the community that we're a part of. I think we get the, the I think a lot of folks have gotten that backwards and they talk about Christianity and the church being about changing the culture. But that becomes their focus instead of them seeing the coming together as the church and that being a transforming power outside. They get the cart before the horse. So I think that does play into that. Let me quote from C.S. Lewis in his infamous book, Mere Christianity. Lewis introduces the idea of why such dry topics like theology matter. Lewis writes, I remember once when I had been giving a talk to the Royal Air Force, an old hard-bitten officer got up and said, I've no use for all that stuff, but mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt Him. Out alone in the desert at night. The tremendous mystery. And that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so pretty and petty and pedantic and unreal. Now, in a sense, I quite agreed with that man. I think he probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. In the same way, If a man has once looked at the Atlantic Ocean from the beach and then goes and has looked at a map of the Atlantic, he also will be turning from something real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of colored paper. And here comes the point. The map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it is based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. And the way that it has behind it masses of experience just as real as the one you could have from the beach. Only, while yours would be a single glimpse... That map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you are content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be more use than walks on the beach if you want to get Hmm. to America. You see, I think what's important about looking at theology as an important part for every Christian is not just that it's dry, but that it is building our faith upon the testimony of hundreds and thousands of people that we are a part of. The church that cannot be seen, that will only be seen in heaven. The work that has been done by theologians that have contended for the faith before us. I don't have to rebuild my faith because it's based on the simple truths of Jesus Christ. And likewise, I'm not okay staying where I'm at. I want to grow in my faith, pursue maturity, and to do that, I might need to follow somebody for a little while. Let's look at an even more fundamental, just super brief. This is not neither of our notes that I'm aware of. How many different gospel records are there? Four. Four. Doesn't that actually fit that map analogy quite well? God didn't just record one gospel record, which would have been sufficient. But no, he recorded four by four different men 
certainly we could talk in the academics of the borrowed material and all that, but regardless, they all four have distinct audiences, distinct personality, distinct perspective, which makes a much brighter, more vivid, clear picture of the gospel and of Christ. It It's like having multiple camera angles on the same set of events, and it gives a much clearer picture of the whole. Uh, and I think that's exactly what this was getting at with this map analogy. Um, and that's actually a pretty profound way of looking at it. Uh, and then you pile on faithful men, faithful people throughout 2,000 years of, hi- of Christian history. Some have gotten it terribly wrong. You know, we can learn from them too. Because we can learn the, about those railroad tracks that are off the way, off the direction, in the wrong direction, off a cliff. We can learn about that if we're willing to learn. But we got to be willing. And he brought up the issue of um, which of our beliefs are based on some of those derailed thoughts from back then. He brought up the issue of modalism earlier. That is a heresy that was identified by the church close to the year 500 A.D. Which, the reason we are able to say so confidently that it is a problem is because of how old that is. And part of what we can learn from it is it's easy to get there. Yeah, very much so. Uh, and, and, and it can be hard to avoid, even in that particular specific one. Uh, just one more, and I'm sure you've got plenty to say about it. I know I've got a, a, a friend of mine that's a music minister that, that he and I used to tie in, and now it's become almost like a satire page every time we get together because he'll, he'll bring up, we sang, your, we sang your song at church Sunday, and I'll just shake my head, hang my head, and think, dude, you need Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but this personal grudge is one because I think it's more than just terminology, and while I think some people try to mark it up that way, words again have meaning, and the deep-seated issue despite Corey Asbury's explanations I still think there's a problem there and that's the song Reckless Love I actually have gotten up out of a worship service and left the room over that song before come back when it's over Uh, I personally see it as something that ought to offend a biblical Christian as it labels God as having a saving grace that is reckless despite the fact that throughout scripture the term reckless or the term that might be translated as reckless is always used in a negative sense and it indicates a lack of thought a lack of forethought a lack of planning and a lack of wisdom those are direct attacks on the character and attributes of God. All three of those present a very real affront to our Creator and King and show a low view of God. Now, I realize Asbury's idea is from our perspective. It is so unreasonable, so unfathomable. It just seems like a reckless thing to send your son down here to die for us. But again, that's a low view of God who is not only omniscient, omnipresent, and totally sovereign, God's plan was to send His Son from before the foundation of the world. And so it's not reckless when God has it all planned out from before He even created the creation it would need, redemption. And so, but most people don't grasp that. And I don't know how much of it is a low view of God that's, you know, they don't realize it. But the songs like this don't help. And, you know, that's just a kind of a personal dig uh, on that song, but it really does. It grieves me when I hear that song. It literally grieves me. It's 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 as bad as songs that talk about wet, sloppy kisses with Jesus. I'm like, are you kidding me? What kind of savior are you looking for? 
Some dude to get you out of the whorehouse? Come on now. That's not the Jesus we're dealing with. But anyway, okay, I've, I've, I've blown my, my, whole, uh, my whole package of, of gripe on that song. No, I think, I, think to say down. I think you've got more to say about it. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I do want to slow down. <laughs> because ultimately on the, song, on the song Reckless Love, I agree with you. That is a terrible... Uh, way to describe the way that God loves. <laughs> and even, as you mentioned, Asbury's justification for using it is a little wishy-washy. We know that words have meaning. Merriam-Webster defines reckless as marked by a lack of proper caution or being careless of consequences. A second definition would be found in the synonym irresponsible. Uh, yeah. That's a terrible way to describe God. To ascribe <laughs> any adjective to God as reckless would be careless theology. But slow down, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone doesn't agree on this. You mentioned a friend. They sing this song in church, which honestly is too far for me. I think this is a song that shouldn't be sung in church. But at the same time, if it was playing on the radio, I would have no problem singing along with it. I'd be cautious of who was in the car with me. (laughs) Words may have meanings, but they do not hold their meaning over time. Take, for instance, the word hope in the English language. That word, used today, we say, I hope you had a good weekend. I hope you will have a good trip. I hope that you will recover. It's used in the sense that it is wishful thinking and It is based not in knowing what will happen or what might take place, but rather that there's a chance that it could possibly happen this way. We even use it in the sense of, well, all reason and everything else has gone out, so all I'm hanging on to now is hope. Let's be clear, that's not how the Bible talks about the word hope. (laughs) Hope, in a Christian sense, describes a certain expectant real reality. Rather than the way the word the world uses the word hope, Christians should be using hope differently. I agree. In the same way, reckless has gone through its own progression throughout time. In the early 90s, there was a phrase that was pretty popular. Whenever somebody got their uh, lunch served to them, or you know whatever it was in a different conversation, we'd say, well, they got wrecked. W-R-E-C-K. They got wrecked. They got served. They got leveled. And it was, again, used in a, a bad way. We'd say, go get wrecked, scrub. If you can... I'm showing my age now. Cast yourself back that far. Getting wrecked was equivalent of being told off. In such a way, it also could be used where there was no rebuttal. There was no way to rebuild yourself. You were completely leveled emotionally because there was nothing to come up from. Hmm. Now, I want to point out that the word wreck, W-R-E-C-K, is different than the word wreck, R-E-C-K, which is to have a care or a concern. Oh, I'm wrecked over them. I have a lot of concern. Or I'm reckless. I have no concern, which is what we're saying God is being described as. Well, in looking at this difference, one of the things that we find is that God's love towards us has no concern for how we will respond. In creation, God decided to create knowing full and well that man would rebel. 
in that sense, if we're looking at God's love, I do think that it is right to say that it is not hinged to the potential future. Rather, it is hinged to a sovereign decision. Absolutely. It's without care for how man may or may not respond. Now, here's where I think it gets a little bit troubling. If we look at it that way, I think that's a modification of what Corey Asbury originally meant. Conversations about songs like Reckless Love cause us to consider what love, God's love actually is like. Between maturing Christians, not even mature Christians, it causes us to have conversations where we ask, what does the Bible say about God's love? The greater problem being addressed with a song like Reckless Love is that people have become lazy, complacent. We don't want to go to God's Word, and rather we say it's a Christian song, so it must be true. And that is where the wagons circle back around. It's all part of that bigger. We dealt with this a little bit in the pragmatism uh, episode. It gets back to people by nature tend to be lazy, and they will get what they think they need from the easiest source possible, the least resistance possible. And let's just be real honest. The Word of God, when it's empowered and ingrained by the Holy Spirit, can speak to the lowest of sinner and the most destitute of souls. But God's Word still requires work. It requires investing time. It requires investing of of the time to meditate, to ruminate, to consider, to ponder, to investigate. Uh, Sitting under sound biblical teaching and preaching involves a sacrifice of time and effort and self. And let's get back to what we started at the very beginning of this, being willing to open up our minds, not turn them off, but open up our minds to listen and absorb and to grow from. Those all require a degree of effort on our part. And we live in a culture that is programmed to immediate satisfaction. The whole, the most, one of the most brilliant uh, advertising campaigns for a long time was that easy button. Mm-hmm. Was that Staples or Office Depot? It was Staples. That and people, they actually sold these things, and obviously they were nothing but a, 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 a toy with a little clicker in it. But it was an easy button you could put on a desk, and you could slap it just to get this, just to get the feeling of this. But the, but people want it. It's just like you go to the doctor. You've got this hurt. You've got this injury. You've got this illness, and you you expect to go to the doctor. They write your prescription. You take a pill. You're healed. That's what we expect now. Immediate gratification. And unfortunately, that has carried over to the Christian walk. And there has never in the history of Christianity been an easy button. The gospel itself is the closest we have to an easy button because the gospel says that if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that God raised you from the grave, it says you will be saved. Period. Exclamation point. Done deal. There's no further discussion. If you genuinely believe, therefore you confess and the reality behind the whole thing that was sealed by the resurrection, then you there's where salvation is birthed from in our lives. But it comes back to the growth, the sanctification, even empowered by the Holy Spirit, and requires and expects effort. You've got to want to be more Christ-like. You've got to want to know God better. And there is no easy button. Now, I will say this. There is music out there 
that is theologically and doctrinally rich and sound that, my goodness, it's like going to seminary class sometimes. Uh, and I've mentioned there's even some rappers out there that have some music that I wish I'd found when I was in seminary because it would have actually helped me to learn some theological points. It's that solid and that sound. But we this about the choices we make. And it's still not an easy button. It's just another tool. So... Well, I think the the reality around songs like this, too, the values in the conversation. And and for me, I I don't think that it's right to rally necessarily against a song for being a little bit careless in the words. And that's one of the things that we learn. If you're studying theology, if you're considering studying theology, one of the things you're going to find out is precise language is key. When you're talking about God, is it homeostasis or homeosusis. You know, we can divide all of these things apart, and some of it we're so far away from, but precision in language is the key to being able to discuss God, right? Well, and and as somebody who's in Greek right now, the more you learn about Greek, Hebrew is the same way, both those languages are far more precise than English by nature. Uh, Many languages are more precise than English. So just simply being in those original languages helps with that preciseness. Uh, And not everybody has access to that, and that's perfectly fine. So that means we need to be all the more conscientious about the words we do use. So We've got some other songs on here, but honestly, I think this this next one, I'm not even going to bring up a Mad Redman song. Suffice it to say, it just simply is in that same genre of this sloppy, sloppy theology, sloppy love, sloppy kiss kind of song that it doesn't really deal with it talks about love and love of jesus but it doesn't really give any explanation where that comes from doesn't even say he i love him because he loved me first which would be a great biblical theological truth it just says i love him and and let you know it what it doesn't talk about redemption it doesn't talk about god's grace and glory and goodness none of that it's just lovey 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 like a boyfriend and girlfriend kind of relationship and that just it's like saying jesus loves me because i look so good you know that that's the kind of the the mindset and i'm just like uh the the trouble with this kind of song is it is so shallow it's pointless and i do have an issue with this kind of a song because what we are teaching not our children what we are teaching our church members is that they should be running towards the emotional experience of the divine emotional there we get back to and that's again something else we dealt with in the pragmatism so many people want an emotional experience and to be consumed with emotion that that becomes the arbiter of doctrinal theological spiritual truth versus what god has said or even how good something is we no longer know what the word profound means because in order for something to be profound it has to give me that goosebump feeling (laughs) I mean, in that sense, reckless love, I think, can be profound because it wrecks me to realize that God loved me before I loved Him. Have you heard the song, Hallelujah? Uh, Several people have done it, uh, a lot of big famous people. Uh, We did one version of it with the singing men of Arkansas. It's one of those songs that will give you goosebumps. And at first listening, you're not paying any attention. It sounds like a Christian song. It is about as far, in its original lyric, is about as far from a Christian song as a song can be. But it sounds so beautiful. And he says, hallelujah, it must be Christian. 
And it's a goosebump song. It's it's so well crafted artistically speaking, and yet it is not a song for church. And I've heard now I've heard some people redo the lyrics to make it more Christian. And we're supposed to be doing one here in another week or two. That's an Eagles tune, but Amazing Grace. Okay. <laughs> and I I, I kind of cringe. Um, I decided to go ahead and participate, but it's kind of cringy because of that association. But that gets back gets to our very next conversation here. What about the music we do? We're again the source of the music itself. You know, there's several groups out there that have become the top 10 weekly basis on CCLI's uh, contemporary Christian used for worship. You know, Bethel uh, from Reddington, California, Hillsong, uh, and all these others um, that uh, that are huge mega churches with super talented, high power. They could be successful in any music genre. And they are, they make up the bulk of the top ten each week in worship music. Should we be using their music? I'm not a big Gospel Coalition fan, uh, just because of a lot of things that's transpired in the last decade or so. Uh, but they did a good post here back in 2019 uh, titled, uh, Should We Use Bethel Songs in Worship? But it's not just actually picking out Bethel. But the article really is more about what our standards uh, should be in worship, period, including the wonderful idea of comparing what we sing to the scriptures. That ought to be obviously the first criteria. But it also deals with the idea of also deals with the idea of um, not only the content of the music or the lyrics theologically and doctrinally sound, but also the source of them. How much can we separate the source of the hymn or song from the song itself? The author of that article uses the example of my personal favorite hymn. This is the one I've already got folks appointed. If I outlive them, they're going to sing it at my funeral. I mean, this, uh, uh, Horatio Spafford wrote the words uh, to It Is Well. Some people know it as it, uh, When Peace Like a River. But It Is Well, that is my absolute favorite song. I was actually introduced to it, not in the context of a hymn, but the actual music to it in band. Uh, Philip Bliss actually wrote the music to it, uh, and it so perfectly matches. It's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. It, it hits all the high points, and that song by itself is fine. I can't find anything significantly troubling about the song. But Horatio Spafford, that wrote the, the hymn, who had suffered many tragic events, it, it adds to the dimension of the story. Uh, he lost his business in the big Chicago fire. He then lost his daughters uh, when he sent his wife on ahead to the U.K. on a trip. And the ship sunk on the way through. The wife was the only one saved. She had to send a telegram. Can you imagine getting a telegram, not a phone call, that says all lost but myself and then the 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 story goes that when he got on the ship to go uh across he actually had the captain come get him from his cabin when they passed where the other ship sank uh, and all that it's a wonderful story it's a touching story but horatio spafford was not a very biblical christian uh indeed he was got involved later in life with more cultic activity that was really kind of bizarre um but major theological errors, including not only charismatic manifestations and claims of prophetic utterances, but the major heresy of denying eternal judgment. He didn't believe in eternal hell at all. Uh, instead, he held to a twisted form of the Catholic purgatory. 
then they just said everybody eventually winds up in heaven. It's a, it's a form of universalism even. Uh, another hymn that I personally love, Come Thou Fond of Every Blessing by Robert Robinson, who actually, he himself forsook Christianity altogether later in life. He walked away from it, completely becoming an apostate. But that hymn itself stands alone. It's solid. It's wonderful. It's a great hymn. Uh, I hear it in a lot of Reformed churches sing it on a regular basis. Uh, it's a great hymn. Or maybe one of the truly, truly great hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. Hard to argue with it. But he was also a rabid anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. Hated them. Wrote uh, all sorts of stuff about the problem of the Jews. He he was like a precursor to Hitler. He was so bad in his anti-Semitism. So here's the issue we run into. Can we separate the music, assuming it otherwise stands alone, biblically sound, from the source? I like to look at it this way. Will the singing and use of the song or hymn endorse or support a heretical ministry or a bad person that's alive today that someone might then be attracted to. You know, I refer to all these books on my shelf. There's some guys up there that I wouldn't recommend. Francis Chan being one that back when I first became acquainted with him, his books were really great. I was encouraged by, I was grown by, I was strengthened by, and then his train derailed. He's gone off the deep end and lost his ever-loving mind. And so now I don't, I don't even recommend those other books just simply because a lot of people, unless they're really mature, can separate it. And there it gets to, we've been dealing with this discussion of people that cannot discern, that don't know. Um, and so do we endorse music from Bethel? Bethel Redding, some of their songs are not terrible and are better than Ain't It a Shame. <laughs> but do we endorse their music? Do we use it in church? You listen to it on your own, that's another deal. But if, do we perform it in church knowing that it is not only financially supporting through CCLI licensing, but is promoting the name of Bethel Redding? We're promoting it by doing it because it's got to be on the screen because they're the ones credited there. Um and that that particular quote church, which I hate to use the term church, they practice forms of witchcraft. They do grave sucking. They go lay on graves hoping to suck the grace from the dead people. I mean, they do some of them. They have the, the, the insanity of that particular group, what I call psychobabble, that isn't even biblical in any sense on any side of the coin. Do we do their music? Hillsong uh, fits in a similar category uh, with its infamy just on stage of very much Vegas chorus line performances, half-dressed dancers, uh, even the famous naked cowboy dude playing with boots and a hat and a guitar, and that's all the closing he has on on stage in a church worship service. Okay. Even if they have a song that might be lyrically appropriate, can we in good conscience perform that music without then even tacitly approving of them? We could say the same about Elevation Worship and and, uh, Stephen Furtick and his insanity. Again, Jesus culture... uh, why? Why? Why is that? Why do we have to be cautious? Because again, we need to be vigilant about what we endorse and promote, just as much as what we sing. Because all easily led people uh, can trust unworthy stuff. Yeah. So there's the ethical side of promoting something. So because we're listening to it, we might send others there. And then there's also the side of supporting it. 
because when you listen to a song on the radio, they are being credited for that. When you and they're listen, getting paid. They're getting paid for it. When you play a song in church, they're getting paid for it. If you download a song from iTunes, they're getting paid for it. You are standing up that ministry and propagating a false gospel in a community that needs the real thing. And so there's... Not just when we're talking about getting theology right, it's not just the presuppositions of our people that we're concerned with. It's not even, hey, is the song right? We also have to consider what are the consequences, of especially these contemporary sources, what am I supporting by listening to it? And that is, I think, the, the neglected sight of many Christians today. Well, there's nothing wrong with the song lyrically, it might even not be anything theologically problematic with the song. Now, that's not the case with all of them, and we only know that if we're going to listen to them. You've got some songs where you can listen to it for entertainment, and it should cause you to have deeper conversations. But what about these songs that are designed for worship? Do I have an ethical problem with supporting a false gospel? real question is, do you care enough about the real gospel to think that you have an ethical responsibility to keep up with it? It gets back to the responsibility as, for us, shepherds, for those that lead singing, whether they're an actual paid staff member, worship pastor, worship minister, or just a plain old song leader that I'm used to, just somebody that helps pick out songs and lead the church singing, there is a hefty responsibility in that. Uh, again, I have pretty much functionally zero control over what anybody does outside the walls of this building. I mean, I have some influence as pastor, but in the bigger picture, I can't force any level of anything. But we do have say in what happens in the church building and what we endorse. And so I think that's important. So, you know, what's kind of interesting about this is this has become such a big topic that I really think we're going to have to divide this into two episodes. I say that because we're at, we got a whole nother I'm looking at my scroll bar on my notes, we're halfway through our notes and we're well over an hour into this. So, I'm going to suggest that we go ahead and pause here for a moment. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to close out this episode with a prayer. And then we'll pick up with, an, with a, a, a B-side episode, so to speak, to kind of continue this thought. So, Derek, do you have any parting thoughts on the music side of these things uh, as we prepare to close out part A of where do you get your theology? The only thing that I would like to add is no matter where you fall on your conclusion whether some songs are good, some songs are bad, or maybe songs are neutral. The caution that we should hear is, no, it's not. What you're listening to is affecting you. It's changing you. It's changing the way that you think about things. And even if you think that you're mature enough not to be affected by that, your children in your car hear what you're listening to. It's shaping the way that they think about things. Your spouse, maybe your unsaved spouse, hears the concepts and the music that you are listening to, and it's shaping their understanding of your God. I look at it the same way as you've got that kid that wants to see a movie, and it maybe is not G-rated, which maybe doesn't mean much anymore. So you decide, I'm going to watch it before I let them watch it. 
but even at a deeper level as Christians, I go back to this probably more than any other of Paul's statements in his writings. Paul commended one group of people in all of his writings because they took what he said, they took what they heard, and they compared it to Scripture. The Bereans. That's my life goal is to be like the Bereans. When I hear something and compare it to the Word, that I can discern what other, what better mechanism to compare it to than the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And so when we're listening, whether it's our own entertainment or whether it's somebody in a position to pick music for church, whatever the case, you, you're sitting in a church church service and you hear a song and something just kind of, well, I'm going to look that up. That just sounds odd. Take the time. It's worth it. And sort through it. Be a Berean. And understand, we talked at the beginning of this, the power of music and repetition. How many songs can I sing from memory because I've listened to and then sung along with dozens of times, and I remember them better than Scripture verses? And guess what? If you remember it that well, it's planted. Uh, And if you're somebody that doesn't have a lot of the Bible filling up those receptors then those are the things that are going to fill them up. And that's where you're going to get your theology. So, as we think about it and close this side A of this particular discussion, I just want to thank our listeners. I hope you haven't been bored to death. Uh, We also are open to comments and suggestions. Uh, Know that we're working on several projects right now, uh, both personal and Derek, I know, is in classes. Uh, I'm dealing with several extra church, extra biblical things as well. But what we do want to keep in mind is our desire really is to help. Uh, And if there's any way we can help you, please let us know. And finally, just want to remind you, we're talking about this because Christ matters. Jesus matters. And therefore, He deserves our best. He deserves our whole heart because He's the one that indeed did, not with reckless love, but absolute intentional love, gave His life on the cross to redeem a wretch like me. There's you a song that will teach us some theology. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Think about those things. And it was never about me. It's always for the glory of God. I hope you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation because there is no other name under heaven or on earth whereby we might be saved. And so I pray that you have indeed put your faith and trust in Him. And as we close out in prayer, I pray that you have a great day. Lord, thank you so much for this episode and this opportunity. And while uh, the discussion has gone just a little different than maybe we might have planned it, Lord, I'm thankful for it. Lord, I pray as we uh, take a break uh, and close out this particular episode, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide our discussions to be Christ-like, that you would guide us to a greater understanding of you and the subject matter. And Lord, we're not doing this to upset people. We're not doing this to grind axes. Lord, we're doing this because the words matter, because theology matters, and because everyone is a theologian. Help us to rightly find the right doctrines, the right theologies, rooted completely and firmly in the Word of God, not in man's creation, not in our desires and our fleshliness, not what's convenient and what feels good and gives us the tingles, but, Lord, what is truly true. And, Father, Lord... Help us to be Bereans as we discern through these things. God and direct us in the spirit of Christ in His love. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day.